my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict iron jaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Howdy and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, your host Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. This episode features dead students, spooky paintings, and familiar pranks. Make sure to be nice to that weirdo in the office if you know what's good for you as we traverse this movie-filled space. Number one, Tag 2015, directed by Sion Sono. A girl named Mitsuko is the sole survivor of a crazy wind attack that kills everyone else on two charter buses that were filled with schoolgirls. Mitsuko runs from the wind, which kills more people, puts on a new school uniform she found in a river, and ends up at a new school where everyone says they know her. More weirdness follows. Teachers go crazy and shoot students. Mitsuko turns into Izumi. Her friend Aki from the new school pops up and starts killing people. Izumi turns into Kaiko and eventually Aki helps Mitsuko take back over. Mitsuko pulls cables out of Aki's arms which make a doorway that leads to Man World. It appears Mitsuko is a weird pawn in a man's game. Mitsuko commits suicide as all versions of herself, which sets her free. In the fictional world, the wind, teachers, Aki, and Azumi, or a man controlling the fictional world, are the killers. Yeah, it's confusing. It is a fictional world. Aki and Azumi appear to be killing innocent, non-playable characters or something, which is why I'm counting them, but I think the dude is controlling almost everything else. Tag is a very surreal movie. Nothing is really wrapped up in the end. I watched the trailer for Tag and thought it was going to be more in line with your typical Japanese gore movie. Tag does have a lot of fun gore, but it's not the Japanese gore cheese I was looking to brainlessly watch at midnight. Instead, Tag made me think about weird multiple universes and other concepts that aren't great to dwell on when trying to go to sleep right after a movie. Since it's easy to talk about, I'll start with the gore. Science Sono is no stranger to absurd death sequences in his films. He's directed a lot of notable movies. The one I want to bring up here is Suicide Club. The beginning of that movie has a bunch of schoolgirls jump in front of a train. Why am I bringing that up? Well, Tag starts off somewhat similar. A bunch of schoolgirls are on two charter buses when suddenly powerful wind comes out of nowhere and cuts the buses and everyone inside them barring Mitsuko in half. Sion Sono sure does love his bonkers mass death of schoolgirls. 
I knew it was going to happen due to the trailer, but if you decide to watch Tag with no prior knowledge, the buy section comes out of nowhere. You basically get a quick shot of the front bus being cut in half, but you don't have enough time to register what's going on before Mitsuko's bus gets the slice as well. The actual gore for this absurd sequence is done well enough. There is a lot of CGI used, but there are enough practical effects in place to make it absolutely fun. After the buses, at the new school, teachers start mowing down the schoolgirls with guns. Most of the gore in this segment is digital and bad, but one of the girls' deaths where she gets her hand followed by half of her head blown off looks a lot better than the other digital effects. The only other gore that I find notable in Tag is what's shown when Mitsuko rips cables out of Aki's arms to create a doorway. The gore that's showcased here ranges from amazing to kinda bad, but I was overall impressed by the creativity and execution of the cable removal. One thing that hurts the sequence is the inclusion of terrible sound effects that don't fit what's on screen. I would have preferred more subtle sound effects over the obnoxious ripping noises that sound like they were pulled right out of that old House of the Dead arcade game. One instance of gore I almost forgot about was a random hypothetical alligator attack that features a terrible CGI gator. I guess it can be terrible CGI since it's a hypothetical situation. The acting is solid across the board. The only exception is the male character who may have had a hand in creating the whole fiction world. At the end of the movie, that character who was barely introduced pops up in old man makeup which looks awful. Movies. Movies please. Stop doing terrible old man makeup when you can hire an old man. Just get a real old man. Stop with this nonsense. The guy is the old man acts horribly. I don't know how much blame to put on him versus the terrible makeup though. I was impressed by Mitsuko's actor. She does an amazing job. She only plays Mitsuko and two other actors play Izumi and Kaiko. They're fine and not given nearly as much screen time, but Mitsuko's actor is the one that really shines. Tag is an interesting, surreal movie. It's not the dumb, gore movie that I thought it would be. It ended up being a lot more original and thought-provoking. I'd say give Tag a watch if you're a fan of surreal movies. Number 2, Apostle, 2018, directed by Gareth Evans. A man named Tom infiltrates an island cult to rescue his kidnapped sister. The cult is led by Malcolm and his two friends, Frank and Quinn. The trio end up killing a guy they thought was the infiltrator. Frank's son is hooking up with Quinn's daughter, which leads to a pregnancy. Tom finds out the island goddess is actually real. Quinn murders his daughter because of the pregnancy and also kills Frank's son. After this, Frank's upset, so he goes to kill the goddess. The goddess's weird guard kills Frank. Tom burns the goddess alive at her request and rescues his sister and another girl from Quinn who's killed during the rescue. The cult disbands and everyone who's alive except Tom and Malcolm leave on a boat. Tom then succumbs to his wounds and becomes the new plant god. The cult and Quinn specifically are the killers. I was going to put the goddess's guard on the killer list, but I realized he was just defending her. The cult is being put on the list because they allowed Frank's son to be executed graphically. I'll talk more about that in a bit. Quinn is the big killer of the movie because 
He just loves killing. Almost all the deaths shown are at the hands of Quinn. Gareth Evans is the director. I am a big fan of his martial arts films. He's probably best known for his Raid series. Apostle is a completely different genre for Evans. The directing is solid. The set design is incredible. Apostle is set mostly on a Welsh island in 1905, and the living quarters, church, and the building housing the goddess all look fantastic. Almost all of the performances are great. The only performance that I found especially weak was Dan Stevens. He plays Tom, the main character, and he's the only actor that completely sticks out. I want to say it's Stevens' face acting that's terrible. Almost every time he's on screen, he's staring at something wide-eyed. He barely ever looks like he belongs and pulls me out of the otherwise immersive world of Apostle. It's revealed that his character Tom ended up being put through hell during the Boxing Rebellion where he was a Christian missionary, but I wouldn't say Stevens' poor performance is him trying to act traumatized. In Apostle, the cult knows they are looking for an outsider that's not supposed to be there, and it's so painfully obvious that it's Tom due to how much Dan Stevens doesn't belong in the movie. He might as well have had a spotlight on him the entire time. Despite the terrible choice to cast Dan Stevens as Tom, Apostle is an enjoyable yet somewhat longer than necessary movie. You'd think that the climax of the film would be intense and quick when it comes to a slow burn movie like Apostle, but once we get to the climax, the film continues to take its time. There are a bunch of awesome deaths in this movie that are mostly accompanied by great practical effects. There is a boring throat slash, but I quickly forgot about it once the other kills started popping up. An assassin has multiple spears driven through his body, which looks amazing. You don't see Quinn murder his daughter, but you're shown her disemboweled body, which is an incredibly depressing sight. Quinn ends up stabbed to death and open up in a similar way to the box cutter kill in Green Room. We also see the top half of a woman whose lower half was turned into goddess chow. We don't see her halved, but the body looks fantastically creepy. Besides the aforementioned deaths, Apostle features multiple crazy machine deaths. The first one shown is the purification execution table which Quinn puts the boy who impregnated his daughter in. The townspeople are totally cool with this, even though the boy tells them Quinn is the real killer. Anyway, the machine consists of five vice grips for the victim's limbs and head. Since having the victim's limbs and head crushed into place by vice grips isn't enough, this gnarly hand crank drill is used to make a nice hole in the top of the victim's head. Once the hole has been drilled and the victim is good and dead, a rose petal is put in the hole to purify them. The other device is kind of a grind up whatever is pulled through kind of deal. Basically something is hooked and then pulled through two spiked rollers. Tom loses some fingers to this machine before pulling through the goddess's weird guard. The finger removal is definitely the most yeesh inducing part of the movie. It looks amazing and real. These old timey torture murder machines are awesome. Besides Tom, another character that took me out of the movie was the goddess's guard whose head was wrapped up in blood rags. Why is this character in the movie? Bloody bandage head comes out of nowhere. We learn how the goddess was found, but I don't remember Apostle ever telling us what was up with Bandage Boy. 
There's a part where Tom is being loud when the goddess and her guard are right by him, which made me wonder why the guard wasn't attacking him. But sure enough, the guard pops up and boops Tom on the head with a big stick. Even though the boot from Bandage Man is hilarious, I think I would have preferred it if he was replaced by normal guards. Apostle is a really cool period piece horror film that's definitely worth checking out for the scenery alone. Check this one out even though things drag towards the end. Number 3, Velvet Buzzsaw 2019, directed by Dan Gilroy. The day after an art exhibit, a woman named Josephina comes across a dead body in her apartment building. The man that died, Deese, had painted a bunch of paintings and left instructions to destroy them. Josephina ends up being forced into a partnership with her boss and art gallery owner, Rodora, to sell the art. It's revealed that Deese killed his abusive father, and Deese used his own blood for the reds and blacks of all his paintings. A critic named Morph, a rival art gallery owner Don Don, and art curator Gretchen get involved with the paintings to some degree. Rodora sends an underling named Bryson to put the paintings in storage. He opens the boxes and ends up being killed after being pulled into a painting. Don Don gets strangled in an art installation, Gretchen's arm is ripped off by an art exhibit called The Sphere, and Morph is killed by an art robot. A new girl named Coco finds all three of those bodies. Josephina is turned into graffiti. Deese's spirit uses art to murder abusive people and people who don't respect art who come in contact with his paintings. Rodora gets rid of all her art, but forgets about a buzzsaw tattoo from her old band, Velvet Buzzsaw, which comes to life and kills her. Coco goes back to Michigan, and a man who found the paintings that Bryson had starts selling them on the street. Deese's spirit channeled through art is the killer, I think. Basically, Deese kills a bunch of selfish people that don't really understand art, and leaves the few people in the movie who aren't terrible, greedy art snobs alone. It's weird that Deese is able to possess works from other artists to do his post-mortem murder, but hey, Velvet Buzzsaw is a silly movie. It's silly in a good way. I think Velvet Buzzsaw is almost an amazing horror comedy. Multiple deaths are comedic, like Bryson being pulled into a painting by monkeys, Gretchen getting her arm ripped off by an installation and being seen as part of the installation the next day, and the pièce de résistance, the hilarious tattoo death that befalls Rodora. Rodora sounds like the name of a monster Godzilla would fight. Even though I love the tattoo death due to the uniqueness of it, it could and should have been way better. The buzzsaw tattoo is located on Rodora's lower neck. In the movie, it comes to life, stays in place, and starts spinning. This is enough to kill Rodora. Here's how the tattoo buzzsaw kill should have gone down. The tattoo starts coming to life. Rodora still reaches back and touches it. Now, her fingers get graphically cut off, and then the buzzsaw starts going around her neck, does a full trip, and decapitates her. The biggest problem with Velvet Buzzsaw is that it doesn't lean far enough into the realm of absurdity. Since Velvet Buzzsaw doesn't go full horror comedy, it ends up being pretty mediocre. Most of the response I've seen for this movie has been Velvet Buzzsaw, more like Velvet Buzz Nah, or 
Velvet Buzzkill. Thing is, the movie is so close to being a great horror comedy. I don't think this movie was trying to be a comedy in any way, though. Jake Gyllenhaal is normally amazing in everything he does, but his performance in this is over the top, which would be fine if this was supposed to be a comedy. Jake does seem to be the only one that read the script as a comedy. Even though he's over the top, I liked him in Velvet Buzzsaw. I liked everyone except Zawe Ashton, who comes off as completely one-note and boring. She plays Josephina, and the movie probably would have flowed better if she was removed entirely. Just have Tony Collette's character Gretchen find the art. Speaking of Tony, I was curious as to why she had such a minor role in this, and it's probably because filming started before Hereditary came out. Her performance is eccentric and wacky. It works. You have a movie with hilarious art deaths where one character stumbles upon most of the bodies. Show more of the art kills on screen. Make them zanier. I want to see the monkeys rip apart Bryson. The costume design for Bryson made him the douchiest looking character ever. He has airpods, a lame hat, and a vest. He's also written as overly douchey to the extreme. After he disappears, the police say they did find something, and it's the AirPods. That had to be aiming for comedy. The AirPods bit didn't do anything for me, though. If the pacing in Velvet Buzzsaw was better, more time was spent on showing the kills in comedic fashion, and if the cinematography and lighting had felt more inspired, this movie could have been the next big horror comedy. Unfortunately, Velvet Buzzsaw falls flat. Since it's on Netflix, I'm still giving it a soft recommendation because there are some laughs to be had. Some questionable decisions I forgot to mention, a song that's completely out of place is played before a sex scene, and when we are told that Deese was in a psych ward, we're shown super lame footage of a psych ward that wasn't necessary in the slightest. Number 4, Down, 2019, directed by Daniel Stam. Two people, Jen and Guy, end up stuck in an elevator on Valentine's Day weekend. They have a nice time, get to know each other, and bang. Jen then tells Guy that she's not into him, so Guy reveals he set everything up. He's actually a security guy and sad boy. A lot of dumb stuff happens, including another security guard and his lady friend getting killed by a guy whose real name is John Deacons. John hides all the evidence in the bottom of the elevator shaft, knocks out Jen, puts her in the trunk of his car, and drives away. John fills a dumpster with gasoline, opens the trunk, and Jen appears to be dead. Jen, obviously still alive, jumps in the car, reverses it towards Deacons, and makes him end up in the gasoline dumpster. Jen then ends this dumpster fire of a movie by starting an actual dumpster fire with a cigar, which kills John. John Deacons is the killer. Wow. I already started bad-mouthing down before I even finished the summary. Can you guess what movie series this belongs to? That's right, listener. This is the February edition of Into the Dark. Down is bad. That's one for five, Hulu Into the Dark. 1.5 if I'm being generous. Who would have thought that a plot where two people get stuck in an elevator 
it's revealed that one of them caused this predicament and then the victim kills the kidnapper shouldn't ever be more than a short film. I know I've stated this in the past, but practically every Into the Dark film is a short film painfully stretched out to be a feature. Let's talk about the very few thing Down did well. There is some decent practical makeup effects for John's face scratches. Um... The face scratches looked good. Well, now that all the good stuff is out of the way, everything besides John's gore makeup is pretty terrible. No one in the film can act. To be fair to the actors, there isn't really much to go off of. Guy John Deacons is a sad boy who had it all before a terrible car accident turned his life upside down. Yeah, they give Deacons a sob story about how his life was ruined for some reason. I'm not sure what the point of him telling that to us is. He was a dumb idiot that caused a car crash, so I should feel bad for him and understand why he would kidnap a woman in an elevator? Sorry, Downriders, that's dumb. Deacons should have been left a mystery creep instead of a sob story creep because no backstory can justify his actions. Whoever wrote Jen's character has probably never talked to a woman before. A woman stuck in an enclosed space with a strange man that just said some weird stuff would not tell the strange man he has no chance with her after they banged. It's obvious he's an unhinged weirdo that will murder someone at the drop of a hat. Jen would be playing it cool until she was able to get far, far away from Guy. I can somewhat look past this terrible writing, but another bit of dumb for plot writing really cemented the fact that whoever wrote this movie doesn't understand how people would deal with a crazy person. The hatch on the elevator ceiling is opened. Jen talks Deacons into letting her go get help. He agrees to this. Jen gets on top of the elevator, and as soon as she's on top, she begins taunting Deacons. Who would do this? She was home free. All she had to do was pretend to be nice for a little longer, but the terrible writer needed a reason for Deacons to chase her, leading to the most unbelievable confrontation ever. Deacons could easily get out of the elevator if prompted. No one would have egged him on like Jen does in the film. It's stupid. Down is stupid. I expect nothing from Into the Dark, and I'm still let down. I was going to note that no one in real life is named Guy, but the name Guy ended up being fake. Go figure. Deacons was probably going back and forth between security and Guy for his fake name. There's a part where Deacons is obviously still alive, so we get a cliched get closer and closer to his face until boom, Deacons opens his eyes while a loud noise plays. How creative and original. One thing I thought was unintentionally funny was how the other security guard, Eddie, was dressed. He's wearing your typical hipster jerk outfit, which is so ugly you're happy he gets cut in half by the elevator. How was he cut in half by the elevator? I honestly have no idea. Deacons had a key to turn the elevator on and off from the inside. During a tussle, part of the key was snapped off in the keyhole. Eddie gives Deacons his key, but since the other key was broken off into the keyhole, the new key shouldn't be able to do anything. The writer must have completely forgotten about the broken off key though, because the new key works without issue. 
Eddie's lady friend is also killed, and of course, Down screws that up. Before she's killed, we see Deacons throwing everything into the elevator shaft. Deacons finds the lady friend and rushes at her with the flashlight in an overly comedic manner. We are then shown the elevator shaft. All Down had to do was show the lady friend's body falling from the top of the shaft shot through the bottom. It would have been a really funny kill. Down beefs this and adds additional pointless shots of Deacons dumping the lady friend's body in the elevator shaft. Also, Deacons has all the space and time in the world to avoid the car when Jen reverses it at him, which makes the climax of the film even worse. Jen doesn't even give us a one-liner when she throws the cigar in the dumpster. I know. I know, listener. I brought this upon myself. I told you I would finish these Into the Dark movies, and I'm going to stick to my word. Do not watch Down. Don't watch any Into the Dark movies except Flesh and Blood. Flesh and Blood isn't even that good. I just realized I'm not even halfway through Into the Dark Hell. Listeners give me strength. Number 5, Pie Wacket, 2017, directed by Adam McDonald. This is a fun one that I recommend going into spoiler-free. It's currently on Hulu. If you don't want spoilers, skip to 31 minutes, 6 seconds. Alright, here's the summary in 3, 2, 1. A girl named Leah is not getting along well with her mother after the death of her husband, Leah's father. Leah is into the occult. Her mom moves them to a secluded cabin. Leah performs a ritual to summon Piwacket to kill her mom. Leah instantly regrets this decision. Piwacket shows up and tricks Leah into killing her mom by pretending to be her mom. Leah burns her mom alive and ends up in police custody. Leah is the killer. This was one of the few movies I hadn't seen on the horror subreddit's top 25 horror movies of 2018 post. It looks like it was released in 2017, but whatever. When it comes to the horror subreddit, opinions are all over the place. Some people love movies I despise and vice versa, so I had no idea if this movie was going to be terrible or great. Based on the name and having not heard about it anywhere else, I assumed Piwacket wouldn't be all that great. Luckily, I was wrong. Piwacket is an entertaining slow burn type film where you don't know if Leah actually summons something with 100% certainty until her friend Janice gets spooked by Piwacket. The atmosphere of the film is awesome. A ton of interesting camera work is used. I feel like I rarely praise horror films for their cinematography, well, at least most of the garbage I watch, but I was really impressed by Piwacket's cinematography. The soundtrack is also great, it has a bunch of fitting songs. Before I go any further, let me explain what Piwacket is supposed to be. Back in ye olde 1644, a witch finder general named Matthew Hopkins spied on some witches who were talking about their familiars. One of the familiars was named Piwacket. So Piwacket is supposed to be a familiar which normally protect the witches that summon them. In the movie, Piwacket is said to be a demon shapeshifter with a knack for pranks. 
Hey, it's Piewacket again here with your favorite social pranks. Make sure to smash that like and subscribe button. On this app, we're going to trick some dumb girl into killing her mom. Leave a comment on how you would have tricked her. Let me also get this stupid thing out of the way too. If you don't stop that racket, I'll summon Piewacket. Anyway, back to actually talking about the movie Piewacket. Almost everything is done incredibly well. I like the acting from everyone. Nicole Munoz is Leah, and she's pretty good. The way Piwacket is shown is almost perfect. There's a part in the movie where Piwacket is coming through a door to get to Leah. You see Piwacket's hand start opening the door. You then see Piwacket front and center, and it looks pretty bad. I would have stopped at the hand during that sequence. The other instances where you see Piwacket are great. We are introduced to Piwacket as a weird shadow that grows some long legs. Stupid sexy Piwacket. The leg growing is a little silly, but I still really liked how Piwacket is displayed there. The other full-on Piwacket shot shows the demon creeping out from beside the house, and the movements are unnatural and unsettling. It's a perfect way to show the demon. It's far enough away that you can't see its face clearly, unlike the door scene that I didn't love. I have a few other gripes. The CGI fire for the house burning down looks terrible, and the camera work during this section is shaky. Piwacket probably didn't have much of a budget, so I understand not actually burning down the expensive cabin. Maybe they could have made a model or just shown the reflection of the house burning in Leah or the guy that comes to pick her up's eyes. During Leah's ritual to summon Piwacket, she slices her arm a little above her wrist, which bleeds like crazy. Everyone knows you only cut your hand for a ritual. She doesn't even dress the wound. Maybe she wanted her mom to see her bleeding all over as a cry for help or something, but the cut seems really dumb. Leah is also told how to stop Piwacket. She has to do the same ritual in reverse perfectly. Leah is also warned not to trust her eyes. Leah goes back to do the ritual, but then sees her mom's corpse. The corpse is Piwacket. Kat watched this with me, and she did not like the fact that Leah did not attempt the reversal. Personally, I didn't mind that Leah bailed on the reverse ritual attempt after seeing the corpse. No one could have successfully done that ritual in reverse perfectly anyway. Now, I do think that Leah should have tried to at least offer Piwacket something to call off the hit. Leah should have been like, Piwacket, please accept these Cool Ranch Doritos as an offering of peace. Please crunch on these tasty chips instead of brutally murdering my mom. My teenage angst got the best of me. I want to be clear that these gripes are more nitpicks than actual big issues with the movie. I still heavily enjoyed my viewing of Piwacket. I definitely recommend checking it out. I've heard Adam McDonald's other film, Backcountry, is also solid, so I'm definitely going to check that out soon. Number 6, Office Killer, 1997, directed by Cindy Sherman. An office worker named Doreen, who's been at the company for years, isn't treated well. While staying late with a coworker who's awful to her, Doreen's coworker accidentally gets electrocuted. Doreen decides to keep the body and realizes dead people will be friends with her. 
Doreen kills her boss, some Girl Scouts, a homeless man, and another office guy. Doreen uses email to pretend that people are still alive to help her career. It's revealed that Doreen's dad was sexually abusing her, and due to this, Doreen caused a car crash that killed him and ended up crippling her mother. Doreen tries to kill a girl named Kim, but fails. Doreen kidnaps a girl named Nora, who's been nice to her, but embezzling money from the company, thus hurting all the workers. Doreen's mom dies of natural causes. Nora's boyfriend tries to save her, but Doreen kills him and Nora. Doreen sends an email pretending to be Nora, which says everything about Doreen going crazy and that she, meaning Nora, had to kill Doreen after finding all the bodies. Doreen then burns down the house and drives off to a new city looking for another office job. Time, faulty wiring, and Doreen are the killers. Man, the name Doreen is hard to say over and over. I clicked on Office Killer on a whim. Molly Ringwald's name helped prompt the click. I have never seen it talked about, which is strange because Office Killer is a well-crafted, quirky film. The shot composition is incredible throughout the film. There are so many unique shots that are meticulously crafted. Most of the movie has a nice warm color palette that makes it feel like a fairy tale. Well, a fairy tale where an insane woman starts murdering people and hanging out with their bodies. The insanity is explained and reasonable given the circumstances, but Doreen is still completely insane. Carol Crane played Doreen, and she's amazing in this. I'm not sure if she's just an incredible actor, or if playing this kind of insane character isn't the toughest job. I want to say a little column A, little column B, but I've seen a lot of terrible hammy performances from people trying to act completely insane. <coughs> Nicholas Cage. <coughs> I don't want to downplay how great Carol Kane was in the role. Her character, at least in the first two-thirds of the movie, looks almost exactly like Dresden Doll-era Amanda Palmer. She has the strange makeup and drawn-on eyebrows. It's uncanny. I was sure that Amanda Palmer must have been the inspiration for Doreen's character design, but the Dresden Dolls formed in 2000. Maybe Amanda Palmer is a huge fan of Office Killer. Office Killer is really similar to another movie I've seen called May, which is about another outcast girl who murders people to combine them in order to make the perfect significant other. I wonder if May was inspired by Office Killer since May came out in 2002. May's worth a watch. I'm pretty sure I've brought it up on the podcast before. Back to Office Killer. The framing and presentation is a complete delight. There is so much to take in during every shot. Besides the fantastic cinematography helmed by Russell Lee Fine, the lighting is also perfect in this. It's purposefully dreary and fits amazingly well. There's a part where the boss is using a photocopier in the dark and the light from the copier makes the scene ominous and unique. The office almost feels like a dungeon which the monster Doreen inhabits. Office Killer was directed by Cindy Sherman and written by Sherman, Elise McAdam, and Tom Kalin. Sherman does a fantastic job at directing, so I was shocked to see this is her only feature. It holds a 12% on Rotten Tomatoes for reasons unbeknownst to me, 
I guess the film was too far ahead of its time. In comparison, May, a movie that has almost the same plot, has a 68%, even though the craftsmanship is nowhere near as good as Office Killers. I normally don't mention ratings, but I feel like Office Killer is objectively good in its presentation at the very least. The biggest issue I had with the movie was Barbara Sokoa's performance as the boss. Her accent was all over the place. The gore in the film is practical and great. The electrocution burns, neck stab, decomposing bodies, severed hands, and cut off thumbs all look great. The only gore that didn't work for me was the disembowelment of Nora's boyfriend, which doesn't really sell, and the disembowelment is done by one quick slash from a dull kitchen knife that was pulled out of a drawer. There's no way that knife would have cut that deep. Another nitpick I have is how the house was shown burning down. A shot of fire burning was placed on top of a shot of the house. I somewhat preferred this to the CGI fire of Piwacket, but neither film did well in regards to showing a burning house. I recommend checking out Office Killer. The presentation is fantastic, Carol Kane is great, and the kills and corpse hangouts are a ton of fun. Oh, and Molly Ringwald's okay in it. At one point in Office Killer, she brings Doreen some ding-dongs, but Doreen is unfortunately gone. Give the weirdo some ding-dongs. That'll keep her from killing you. Ringwald played Kim, the girl Doreen failed to kill. Number 7. Triple R's. Reboots, remakes, reimaginings. Listeners, I was this close to getting a decent copy of Killer Tongue for this episode. A buddy of mine found a beautiful copy, but the audio was completely out of sync. I'm going to see if I can fix the audio on that, because I also purchased a DVD that had three movies, including Killer Tongue on it, which had the terrible, zoomed-in, yellow version on it. There's 20 bucks that I'm never gonna see again. I tried to sync the good copy with the DVD's audio, which, again, couldn't sync up correctly. I should be able to find a way to play the good quality copy twice at the same time to sync that video and audio, but I haven't gotten around to it. Stay tuned for Killer Tongue. Since I couldn't find it, I thought I would talk about my opinion on all the reboots, remakes, reimaginings that are popping up. Scream the TV show, Halloween, Child's Play, it, Pet Cemetery, Candyman, The Mummy, Evil Dead, Piranha, yada, yada, yada. First off, I want to answer the question everyone asks when a property is being used but doesn't stay faithful to the original. Why don't they just call it something else? Brand recognition. People are much more likely to see a movie called Child's Play about an AI doll gone bad. Wait. Isn't that the same plot as Small Soldiers? Hold up, I would be 100% more hype for a new Small Soldiers movie than a new Child's Play movie. Hollywood bigwigs? Get on that. Where was I? Oh yeah, people are much more likely to see the new AI Child's Play than a new generically named bad robot AI toy movie since people already know and love Child's Play. That's the nature of the beast. If someone owns the rights, 
They're going to abuse those rights to make some moolah. That's not to say that all reboots, remakes, reimaginings are bad. Piranha 3D is much better than the original. Evil Dead is an awesome new take on the old story. Scream the TV show is kinda okay, though mostly mediocre and turns into absolute crap after the first season. But in all those examples, they brought something new to the table. New It is much more entertaining as a whole when compared to the 16-hour made-for-TV version, even though the new version likes stupid jump-scare sound cues way too much. To be honest, I actually think the made-for-TV version is a lot of fun, but for my point, new it is different. Personally, I think the new Pet Cemetery looks bad. I'll still be seeing it. I don't think the original is a good movie, but the original is a hilarious movie. Remember when Dad tells Church, Today is Thanksgiving Day for cats, but only if they came back from the dead. I love that part. This section has ended up being mindless blabbering. If I'm being honest, I was a bit under the weather, which caused me to get a bit behind this episode. Does anyone think that Aubrey Plaza can play a believable mom who has an almost teenage looking son? No, me either. What the hell, new child's play? I think I started this section trying to make a point. My point is, reboots, remakes, reimaginings, or triple R's as I just started calling them, can be great. For example, The Thing, the one from the 80s, it's a remake, well more of a new adaptation of the story which I am lumping into the reimaginings category. I haven't seen the CGI heavy prequel so I don't have an opinion on that at the current time. Triple R's can also be absolute rat vomit, like the new Ghostbusters. As long as the property is being handled with love and not just a studio cash grab, we should approach Triple R's with an open mind because maybe, just maybe, they'll be even better than the original material. I still don't like the new Suspiria even though it was close to greatness. I know. I didn't talk about a billion other triple R's that exist, but I think all of you are already over the post-sickness ramblings of this host. That'll do it for a recommendation-heavy episode of Blank is the Killer, number 38. I hope I didn't say office space on accident during the office killer section. My brain really wanted to say office space. If you enjoyed this episode of Blank is the Killer, please, I'm begging you, leave me a rating on iTunes. I need them. Or don't, it's totally cool. Thanks to Sticker Fridge for hosting the show on their website, allowing it to enter your minds. The search for Killer Tongue continues. Melinda Clark has still not gotten back to me. Blank is the Killer will be back in action on February 24th. I'm excited for Happy Death Day to you. Here's hoping it doesn't suck.